one of the blessings of giving a retreat for the parish is I myself can take a retreat, some days of prayer uh, and silence. So I haven't left, uh, really, the parish grounds. There's one exception, though, today. I hope to see Father McAfee, uh, a good friend, and I invite you to pray for Father and all priests uh, in retirement who are struggling with, with health issues. So, so many years they've served us, we offer daily prayers for the good priests who have labored in the vineyards. We are in the midst of Easter season, and it's not only after Easter, but it's also going towards Pentecost. So we'll have a celebration of Ascension and then Pentecost. So around this time in particular, we're starting to really more and more ask the Holy Spirit for the gifts we need. And in the Gospel today, our Lord says, "...who when the Advocate comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify to me." So we ask in this parish retreat for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that we may be inflamed with the love of Jesus Christ. This homily uh, will be divided into three parts. I'd like to always give you a little itinerary. Uh, Pope Francis likes to divide his talks into three parts, following the example of St. Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, who did the same and honor the Holy Trinity. First, I'll speak as a way of a summary about the Our Father that I spoke last night, for those of you who may have not been to hear that. A little commentary in the Our Father. And the second, a particular point of the Our Father about forgiveness, which is a key element of our retreat meditation. And finally, the third, the joy that we receive from knowing that we are forgiven by God. First, the Our Father, it teaches us how to pray. It's called the Lord's Prayer. And St. Augustine says, any type of prayer that we're inspired to pray authentically by the Holy Spirit is contained in some way in the Our Father. We begin with a petition, well, actually a praise of God, Our Father. That's important because before we start praying the seven petitions, we're acknowledging God as our Father. Before we look at our own needs, we're seeing God as central to us and that we're created to know, love, and serve him in this life and to be with him forever in the next. There are seven petitions of the Our Father. It, they go like this. The first three deal with God and his kingdom. The fourth deals with daily bread, particularly the Eucharist. And the final three deal with those things we have to live in here in this Valley of Tears. So it goes three, one, three. The way that the petitions are ordered. The one in the middle, the daily bread or the Eucharist, is the nexus, the connecting point between God and earth, heaven and earth. And that's good to remember because we'll return to that, to seeing how central the Holy Eucharist is in our prayer and in our life. The first three petitions, hallowed be thy name. Name refers to the person, actually the three persons of the Holy Trinity. May your name be made holy in me. May your name be praised in and through me. 
Then we pray for his kingdom come and his will to be done. So already when we start to pray, it's all focused on God. Honor, praise, adoration. As we see in the book of Revelation, that is how the saints and angels are activity, their activity in heaven. From that, I want you to imagine the Mount of Transfiguration. So that's when Jesus took three of the apostles to the very top. Perhaps those of you who've been to the Holy Land have been there. The very top of the Mount of Transfiguration. And they saw the Lord become bright as the sun, being transfigured. Peter, James, and John. And it was to strengthen them, because 40 days later in Catholic tradition, 40 days after the Transfiguration, those same three apostles would see him sweating blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that transfiguration was a preparation for the cross and the death of Jesus Christ. To strengthen them that they would not forget that he was God and that he, had never, he would never leave them in, their, in his passion. After the transfiguration, and Peter wanted to build three tents, and Jesus basically said, no, we must continue on to Jerusalem. They started walking down the mountain, and you remember at the very base of the mountain, what did they encounter? The father whose son was possessed by the demon, and the disciples could not drive him out. So already from the transfiguration, they had to walk down into the greatest darkness. And that's somewhat of our walk in life. We get little times of seeing Christ transfigured, and then we're back in the spiritual battle. And sometimes it's so overwhelming. But we cannot forget those moments of seeing the Lord when he comes to us in consolation. The daily bread, the fourth petition. So we have his name be hallowed, his kingdom come, his will be done. The daily bread, it refers in general to everything we need on our journey to heaven, but particularly the Holy Eucharist. I'll return to this. The final three, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And the Catechism says that the principal meaning of evil is the evil one, Satan. Deliver us from the bondage of Satan. And finally, amen. The Our Father does end with an amen. So that is the ordering of the petitions, but also the way we pray. Because if we always start looking at ourselves, and particularly start looking at our sins and our faults, eventually we have to get there. But if we start there, we may, may never really get out. As a spiritual director once told me, if you focus on darkness, you'll spend the rest of your life shoveling darkness out of your heart. We must let the light come in from the Father of lights and be transfigured with the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the Holy Eucharist, at the very center of the Our Father, notice right after it, as we go down the mountain, right after the Holy Eucharist is, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's the only one of the seven petitions that has a condition, the only as. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Very, very important. There's a bishop I know quite well. He's auxiliary bishop, retired auxiliary bishop of St. Louis, Bishop Robert Herman. Very holy man. 
he's the only bishop I know that's basically a full-time exorcist. He's got a gift in that. And we were talking on the phone last year, and we are talking about helping people who have, uh, sometimes in the more extreme cases, possession, oppression. Uh, it does happen. It's not that common. But more in the lighter uh, afflictions, like uh, oppressions, unwelcome thoughts, all the things that people come to him to be liberated from the bondage of Satan. And he said in his, his years of experience of praying over people, in the vast majority of the cases, the root cause is unforgiveness. The fact that a person has not let go of their anger, has not let go of their hatred of the person who has offended them. And this becomes an open door for the evil one. And so we pray that simply to be Christ-like, to love, particularly those who persecute us, but also for protection. And there's something that when we hang on to anger, willfully hang on to anger, it's a lose-lose situation. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. That is what anger is like. That's what envy is like. We know the Eucharist is a source of healing for us. Basic catechism rooted in 1 Corinthians, it should be known all to us that any mortal sin committed must be uh, confessed in the confessional before we receive Holy Communion. However, the Council of Trent teaches that for a person in the state of grace, Holy Eucharist itself can forgive venial sins. That does not mean if we're not committing mortal sins, we stop going to confession. No, we continue to go to confession on a regular basis so that the roots of our venial sins may be taken away. But interesting, the Eucharist itself is a source of healing in that regard. It's a source of strength for us. And particularly in the way of unforgiveness, we've confessed that, we bring it over to our Lord, but still we may have memories. And I'll speak about, about that tonight, about the purification of our memory for bad things uh, that have happened to us. Perhaps some of it we've caused ourselves. Other cases we've been innocent. But even years later, we still hurt. And we bring that to our Lord, particularly after receiving Holy Communion, to say, Lord Jesus, please heal the last remnants of any unjust anger, of any wrath that I still may have in my heart. And everything we do, we bring into the Holy Communion, particularly our family, uh, that we may grow closer in our family love, and that the Holy Spirit may remove any obstacles to love. It's a beautiful thing when spouses, and sometimes I'll recommend this, I'll say, do you know, I'll say to a spouse, that you're closest to your husband or wife after you receive Holy Communion, because your Holy Sacrament of Matrimony was brought to perfection in the nuptial mass. That's where it happened, and that's where it continues to grow. So in the silence of your hearts, after receiving Holy Communion, renew your marriage vows and bring your children within that renewal. It's a beautiful way of having that grace of holy matrimony maturing like fine wine. And oftentimes through the winter of marital love, through the many years of trials and tribulations and joys and successes, you find that beautiful wine that's kept for the very end like it was at the wedding feast of Cana. So we go through the Our Father and ask, particularly as we go to the trespasses and sins, that we ourselves may open a heart for forgiveness, but we also want to forgive those who have trespassed against us. 
And the Our Father ends with the Amen. Now, usually that's not done, and we know probably why, because when we're praying the rosary, I'd say 90% of people do not say Amen at the end of the Our Father. And there's a reason for that. It's because we pray mostly the Our Father in the context of the Holy Mass. When we pray the Our Father, the Amen is said, but not at the very end. So we say, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then later you'll say, for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours forever and ever. Amen. That's the amen there as a sense of a unity of that doxology. But it's good to have a habit when we do pray the Our Father outside of the context of Mass to pray the amen. Because it brings us back to the very beginning, the Our Father. Having gone through those seven petitions, we're now knowing that the Lord has never left us. And that he is working his peace and his joy within us. The responsorial psalm gets us into the second part of the homily. I oftentimes consider the responsorial psalm kind of like what people on the East Coast, maybe not you, uh, refer to flyover states <laughs> or in California. So your tr- person's flying from New York to California and they talk about, oh, look at Iowa, Colorado, nice flyover states as they're sipping tomato juice at 35,000 feet. Those of us who live there knows there's a lot of wonderful things in central United States and the Rocky Mountains. Oftentimes, though, in Mass, we may just kind of fly over the responsorial psalm. We may say it without much contemplation and meditation. So I'd like to draw our attention to what we pray today. It's very central to our theme about mercy and forgiveness and the effect of that. The Lord takes delight in his people. So yesterday at Holy Mass and last night, about the way that the Lord delights in us. He rejoices in us. He's so heads over heel in love with us. And we're asked in the psalm to sing to the Lord a new song of praise in the assembly of his faithful. We know when we realize that we've been redeemed and that Jesus has come into our lives through the Holy Spirit, that there's a joy that comes. And we know that we can't, we do not, we're not expected to carry everything by ourselves. Uh, G.K. Chesterton once said, angels can fly because they take themselves lightly. The same way, it's, you know, the Lord says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy, my burden light. Say, Lord, no, it feels very heavy now. See, the Lord was a carpenter, as was St. Joseph. And there are at least two types of yokes that they would have made in their wood shop. One is a single yoke that they put over the back of an ox uh, to, like, pull something like a plow. But there's also a double yoke where you'd have two oxen side by side for very heavy lifting or very heavy plowing. And I like to think that Jesus, when he said, take my yoke upon you, that he's referring to the yoke that he himself perhaps made with his own carpenter hands, that he was at our side, walking with us, carrying the brunt of the weight for us. Take my yoke upon you. And there's a certain levity that we have when we realize how much God has lifted us up. We're so dependent upon him. And that is where, as we walk the, the Via Sacra, we start to get a greater sense of, of joy. Joy is a realization, it's an outpouring of love that God so loves us, and we can love him in return. 
And that's where the image comes up about dancing. And I like to just do a little, not a little dancing, but a little talk about dancing. In the scriptures, this is really, I think, quite profound. And there's three types of dancing that I have been able to pinpoint. I think it follows a certain progression. So if you uh, be patient, I'll go through this, and it'll come to a point here at the end of the homily. David, uh, King David, when the ark was recaptured from the Philistines, the ark came towards him, and he was so overjoyed that the Lord was coming to him that he basically danced uh, practically naked. He had a loincloth around him before the ark, and he just lost... uh, so much of himself and joy before the ark. And he embarrassed many people, including his wife. In his dancing around the ark, it's interesting that the early bishops, the fathers of the church, in commenting on that dance, say that it was a symbolic representation of the coming passion and death of Jesus Christ. There's so many things about that different dance and the things that were handed out, like the raisin cakes and the meat you can go back and read there, and I think it's in Second Samuel. But the fact that he was wearing a loincloth like Jesus Christ on the cross, dancing before the, the ark, which was a symbolic image of the Lord Messiah yet to come. Let us fast forward maybe about a thousand years. So the Blessed Virgin Mary said, Fiat. And the word became flesh in her womb, Jesus Christ. She immediately went to serve her cousin Elizabeth, who was six months with child, with John the Baptist. And St. Luke says very beautifully in the Gospels that as Mary and Jesus entered into the presence of Elizabeth and John the Baptist, the infant in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, leapt for joy. And in the Greek uh, New Testament... That verb for leaping is the same description given to David dancing before the ark. So here we have John the Baptist dancing before the ark of the new covenant. The Blessed Virgin Mary, who carried within herself not the the tablets of the old law, but the lawgiver himself, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist himself was a figure of our Lord. He himself would lay down his life for Jesus. He himself would find joy in deep suffering. The third type of spiritual joy expressed in a type of dance. It's Jesus on the cross. He himself, uh, in utter pain and agony, in his human uh, nature, the greatest pain ever experienced, that he suffered for our sins. But he was so taken in his humanity by the Father's love. He was supported by the Father's love. And there was deep down in his heart a joy and a peace and a mercy that even though he could not move, he was so blessed to be loved by the Father and to give himself up to the Father. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It's a type of giving oneself over. And by the word dance, what I mean by that is whenever we dance, whether physically or in our prayer, it's a type of letting go. Perhaps at wedding receptions. Um, or maybe you're really happy about something at home. 
You just have a little levity for just even for a brief moment. There's a type of letting go, and everything seems okay. And we wish we could be like that forever. And we're ordained to be like that forever. But there's something about carrying our cross in joy, carrying the cross with firmness, that the Holy Spirit will give us that joy, even in the depths of suffering. And that's why we pray for fortitude during this preparation for Pentecost, that we may remain on our cross not two hours and 59 minutes, but for the full three hours. Isn't it true when we have persevered through something that's been very difficult, we're exhausted and worn out, there's still a deep joy that we fulfill God's will as imperfectly as we, as we have. And even if we've dropped the ball and stumbled, Our Lady comes in and makes things new. St. Joseph Cupertino has a beautiful image. He says, imagine a man walking down the street and he trips on the sidewalk. Provided he maintains his balance, he actually speeds up. He gains a few steps. So even our falls and our sins, if we go straight to the heart of Jesus, we actually can be even further impelled, even quicker, into the divine love of God. So nothing goes to waste. There's no reason to fret or to worry. That's a type of joy that the Lord wants us to have. There's a beautiful soon-to-be saint, I hope, Father Solanus Casey, whose body is up in Detroit. You probably know about him. He, uh, he's venerable, perhaps we beatified. You see, just as a, um, a word of encouragement to us men, we do not yet have a native-born American male canonized saint. So we need to get our act in gear. There are certainly, like St. John Neumann, who came over from Bohemia, but there's like three or four native-born American male uh, who may be canonized in the next 10 or 15 years. But Solanus Casey, I think, is one of the front runners. He was a Franciscan Capuchin in Detroit, very simple. He was a porter for many years at the monastery. And here's what he said about confidence in God. Confidence in God is the very soul of prayer. It is based on the belief that God is good and therefore can be trusted. It is this confidence that becomes the condition for supernatural intervention in our lives. Ask and you will receive. God is one who cares. If he said this, he meant it. If something did not turn out as expected, even this would be good. All things work out for the good for those who love God. And that's the joy in carrying the cross. When we feel that we can go no further, and when we may think through temptation are not meant to be a saint, we want to stop, lay down in the meadow, and smell the flowers. We, he- we hear the steps of Jesus encouraging us to go on to carry his beautiful cross, in which is our wisdom, our joy, and our salvation. I slipped his fingers, I escaped his feet. I ran and hid from him whom I feared to meet. One day I found him fettered on a tree. He turned his head and beckoned me. Neither by strength nor speed could he prevail, for each hand and foot was pinioned by a nail. He could not run, nor clasp me if he tried. Instead, he called me to his side. For pity's sake, said I, I'll set you free. No, said he, take up thy cross and follow me. For my yoke is easy, my burden light, neither hard nor grievous if you wear it tight. And so I followed him who could not move, 
an uncaught, an uncaught captive in the hands of love. 